It's time for Getting Down to Business with Mark Mondo. This new show discusses trends, technology, and tactics to help the listener learn more about improving sales, saving money, and fulfilling a personal mission through entrepreneurship. Welcome to Getting Down to Business with Mark Mondo on WVLP 103.1 FM. I'm your host, Mark Mondo. We're on the air in Valparaiso, Indiana, and you can listen to us streaming on the website at wvlp.org or use the TuneIn app on your mobile device and look for WVLP. 103.1 FM WVLP is a local nonprofit radio station based in Valparaiso, Indiana. This show, like many of the shows on WVLP, are made possible by the generosity of donors and underwriters. We accept donations at WVLP.org. Simply click on the support tab and make a one-time donation or sustained pledge to WVLP. All donations are tax deductible. Underwriters are made up of businesses and organizations that support the shows on WVLP. Getting down to business with Mark Mondo would like to thank Holmes by Hortensia, a Coldwell Banker affiliate in Porter County, Indiana, for their support. Holmes by Hortensia has served the region's residential real estate needs in Indiana for over 12 years. Contact Hortensia Moreno or Tiffany Zorio at 219-249-5118 or visit homesbyhortensia.com. Homes by Hortensia, habla español. Welcome back. Today, we're going to delve into more detail about hiring and employee retention. I really want to explore the common trope that I hear that no one wants to work. Well, to explore this topic, I have two people to help me through this. To my first side is the producer, the star soprano, and the one who keeps us all on topic and on time. Let's welcome Cynthia Zimmerman. Hello, hello. And to my other side is our guest of the day. You may have heard of him on a couple of our previous shows. Michael Moyen is a social impact entrepreneur, master collaborator, innovation architect, vision interpreter, enterprise whisperer. He's been part of my core advisory team for more than six years and a client for more than 20 years previously. Michael brings to our podcast more of 30 years of innovation design, entrepreneurial and strategic advisory experiences, with concentrations in social enterprise, economic development, business modeling, workforce development, finance, banking, real estate, customer journey mapping, process alignment, hospitality, technology, marketing, branding, project management, business plan, and presentation development. Welcome back. Thank you, Brother Mark. I'm going to start this with one stat, and then we're going to get into more stats. But rather than having this hour dedicated to just reciting stats, I want to introduce stats as the numbers, but the numbers without context is meaningless. So let's start with one thing I read before, literally minutes before we started this recording. According to the Bureau of Labor stats, as of September 7th, 2023, the unemployment rate is 3.8%, and it's hovered under four since January of 22. My initial conclusion from that one data point is I believe people do want to work. So what are the undercurrents under that trope that I talked about previously of no one wants to work? I've got my opinions, but I'm going to hear from both of you. We're going to have this conversation throughout the hour. Now let's cite some more stats before Michael starts talking about his viewpoint. And Cynthia is going to add a lot in DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Let's talk about how COVID was the catalyst that really fundamentally changed the employment landscape. There could be an argument. I think Michael might talk about what happened in 2008, but I'm going to start from 2019 or 2020 and work our way from there. During 2020, we had COVID and something that was termed the Great Resignation. 
So people were starting to leave work because they were kind of done with it. I think COVID shifted an opinion of what work means to them. Now that you had more time to consider things, work, I think, now had a different placement in values. So some of the stats that came out of this, according to a couple sites called Mequilibrium and the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, are 40% of employees were considering resigning during the great resignation or the big quit. And 70% of employers were struggling to find talent. One in three adults suffer from anxiety. 60% of those people suffered from both anxiety and depression. And then during this period, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, 47 million workers actually quit. So something happened here. And turnover has been steadily increasing. 10% annually over the last decade. So it sounds like we're getting more than the unemployment stat. Now we're starting to see something of the undercurrent that now the numbers have context. And this is where Michael has worked a lot. And, and that whole list of credentials I spoke about earlier, how is human resources different from, I'll call it even from the era of the assembly line, you know, from 1920s, Ford assembly plants to uh, we'll jump all the way to the 50s, uh, then jump all the way to 2008, and let's jump into the COVID, and then let's jump into today. Michael, go ahead. I think it's interesting that uh, these things kind of kind of all came to the world's consciousness, you know, during COVID. You know, there were more open positions and people looking for work. and Every, all employers, all your clients, Mark, you know, they were scrambling to not only find, but also to keep people. Remember, turnover is arguably your highest labor cost, you know, even more than payroll, right? So uh, well, actually, no, I, I don't know that. I would think one place might say, well, oh, good, that person left. That's off my payroll. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> I, I, I think unless they laid them off and have a plan to make their processes work better, which is in your wheelhouse, people talked about this was a big thing. You know, there was another thing, another term, quiet quitting among young people, you know, basically just showing up and not being work, you know, not being engaged with the work. Gallup added a cost to that too. You know, roughly for every 10,000 for disengaged workers, in other words, people that just aren't engaged, they're just kind of phoning it in. That's $3,400 per 10,000 in salary you're losing in tardiness, missed work days, and decreased pro productivity. That's a lot of money. It's a hidden cost. You know, if you're looking at turnover, you know, I mean, if it's a high level employee, somebody earning over $100,000 a year. That might be for recruiting and, and training, not to mention loss of productivity during the transition. Making that higher might cost you three times what their salary was. And even for low cost, let's say an entry level, just recruiting and training an entry level person at $60,000 a year, that might cost your company $30,000 just to place and get that person acc acclimated. That's a lot of money. And when you think of that in terms of your bottom line, then now you have a strong business case for caring more about your employees and making them want to work for you. I was going to say that uh, you, you mentioned, Mark, that turnover has been steadily increasing by 10% annually over the past decade. That's really kind of an eye-opening number because everyone thinks that, oh, it was COVID that, you know, that changed everything. No, it just... It just made us aware of it. Well, Ever put us in the time machine a little bit here. Let's yeah, let's go back. We, we did this during warm-ups. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, I believe, and I don't think I'm alone here, that the cycle actually began after the big crash in 2008, 2009. It was at that time, you know, when the, when we were, you know, in a state of economic collapse, that employers learned. I believe that that organizations adapt and evolve just like living organisms. And that uh, I think that, uh, that they learned that they could get employees out of fear and just the realities of the marketplace to do three persons jobs. I mean, when there was massive layoffs that happened, 
I mean, remember, you know, when the real estate industry crashed, that was 40% of the GDP. Think about that. You know, the defense in industry is only three. That's massive. Oh, it was massive. Uh, personally, on an anecdote basis, my, uh, my ex-wife was in architecture at the lar one of the largest firms in the country. Famous, you know, name brand stuff. And as soon as that hit, I mean, we saw a couple things hit in our house like, oh, our line of credit, you can't use it anymore. Okay, whatever. We're not using it anyway. And all of a sudden, when that last project stopped, they cut that whole firm. I think they cut 40 to 60%, 40 to 60% gone, buy, done, out. All the money ran out to fund buildings. And it was catastrophic. And I, I know my story is anecdotal. Cynthia, feel free to share what you want. But boy, it was, I don't know anybody. There are very few people that I know that got away that, that didn't get unscathed in that, in that timeline. Yes, I agree. You know, you look at, uh, for instance, attracting and buying employees. Another big thing that I, I, I'm probably the only person on this, uh, on this podcast today that routinely uses public transportation because <laughs> I'm a city kid. But the, uh, but the fact is, is that, you know, the ghost bus problem is, is an issue in, in, in the city where your app will tell you that a bus is supposed to be there in three, three minutes. And you are waiting 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes. And, and what we learned was that the CTA was down about 900 drivers. You know, that's both trains and buses. And by the way, these are good paying jobs. These are 30 bucks an hour, 35 bucks an hour. Hell, the mechanics were closer to 50. They couldn't attract and retain employees. And by the way, you've got some neighborhoods in Chicago that are probably up, you know, 30, 40% on unemployment. And we know among young people, 18 to 25, we know that 40% of them, this is African-American kids on the South and West side, 40% of them are both not in school and, and not working. All right. So, you know, there are, uh, there's a mass. Is this a current statistic or are we, are you talking about current? Because I, I think we jumped a little bit on timeline for the audience. There. Yeah, no, that's definitely current. And okay. it, it has been steady for the last, that number has been steady for at least the last eight that I'm aware of um, and probably longer. So uh, in terms of attracting and retaining employees, and we'll re revisit that, that stat a little bit later. My point is, is that what are the economic consequences to this? Well, you know, stuff flows down downstream, right? So if you don't have people going downtown, by the way, we learned that attracting those workers, public safety was a big problem. But people that, yeah, they're good, good paying jobs, but nothing's worth taking my life in my hands. And until we got public transportation sorted out so that people felt comfortable going downtown, you've got the LaSalle Street corridor now that is 40% vacant. That is massive, the economic impacts. It's not just the rich property owners that, that, that are hurting. It's the tailors, it's the restaurants, it's the accountants and the business services, all the economies that support those businesses in that ecosystem are suffering. And by the way, if we were to turn all that square footage into residential, because we have big supply and demand issues that are causing an affordable housing crisis, that would only make a 1.4% impact into our housing supply. That's how massive that disparity is. So there are consequences to these issues, but to the small business owner, it's just the bottom line, man. We kind of went down a, to, from a microeconomic path to a macroeconomic path. So let's talk about maybe getting back to, hey, I'm a relatively small, a smaller shop, maybe a, a retailer or a restaurant or something on those lines. And the cost of employee retention, I'm trying to figure out is, you know, why should I treat an employee as an asset? I could give you my background and in, in, in our company and then, then we'll go one example and then we'll go to Michael's example. Because Michael, you have a, a, a larger range of experience than I do. In my company, and I can talk to you know, the IT world is that they're very, fairly specialized people. You tend to pay them a lot. You know, you can't really turn them into commodities because their skills are so specialized. So the people that have been in my circle have been around for a long time, but I can afford to pay them pretty well. So let's 
kind of swing that back to what you, I apologize. I think I interrupted you, but to go into, well, I'm, I might want to see, uh, I run a print shop. I run a, a restaurant where I might be more inclined to see the employees as cogs in a wheel that I can take in and out. I've heard anecdotally a lot of terrible uh, situations on how, and one print shop in particular, we won't name one of my family members worked at the boss treated the workers like somebody out of a diamond mine. Are they smuggling diamonds outside of the mine? Right. Yeah. That adversarial approach is just no longer working. Employees have, have had enough. Now we have lots of examples of these cycles in, in our history, going back over a hundred years, unions and the eight hour workday and a five day work week and all that stuff. But the example, I, I think, which is apt to what you're speaking of, to the print shop owner, I can speak to a client that owns a restaurant, really proud of himself. You know, he got food costs down to a really good number. Marketing efforts are happening and things are going. It's hard to run a restaurant. That's a particularly hard business to do. And because the margins are so thin. But he just is always complaining to me about labor costs. And I know what it feels like inside a restaurant if, you're work, you know, if you work there. You're talking about cutting shifts. You're talking about cutting shifts short, closing early, all this stuff. Because you're doing the calculus in, a, in your mind. Is it worth it to keep the place open and pay for heat and light and insurance and staff? If there are another any, hour, another three hours. Exactly. That's time. That's, and that's an adversarial calculation right from the get go. And I just said, man, I said, maybe you might want to start just by not no longer looking at your employees as commodities. Let's start there. And let's imagine that they might be more than commodities and a cost item on your balance sheet. And let's look at them as potential assets. You know, every last one of them has at least 500 people in their social networks. What are you doing to align their interests with yours so that they can help you put butts in the seats and keep your, I mean, you know, all of a sudden that becomes a paradigm shift to looking at them as a cost item to looking at them as potential revenue streams. Now, all of a sudden, you've got a whole different di di dynamic and the impact of that was almost immediate. I mean, it became so that you couldn't get a seat without a reservation. Everybody's getting bonus and making money. It became a place that people wanted to work at. What and did his employees exactly do to help change that paradigm? How did he approach them about it? It was um, that there would be bonuses if, you know, based on the check size, friends that they brought in. And there was a coding system. It was all done through the POS system. You know, the point of sale system where all the customers were, that's basically their CRM system. Uh, and it was just an incentive. Over a few beers one night, the partners just said, okay, you know, they developed an incentive system. The employees would be motivated to get their people in their networks to spend money in the store. Wow. Yeah. Did they have met much turnover with the staff? I mean, did maybe some employees feel like, well, I, you want me to be your PR person in, in the sense of sharing about this restaurant on my social media? Did I mean, did he get any uh, pushback? Quite the contrary. Their, you know, their paychecks were increasing by twenty five percent or more. They were. Exactly. It, it was. It was to a point where you had more people who wanted to work there than open positions. You know, they, wow. They, they they flipped the coin from the other way. Oh, where, that's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I guess what does that mean? It means that, you know, there, there are consequences, you know, there are winners and losers to those that adapt to the circumstances. Top performing companies are viewing their employees less as commodities now than assets to be nurtured. And a new paradigm has emerged, one that engages workers as whole people for the benefit of both the employers and employees alike. You know, no longer do you hear people call it recruiting or even, God forbid, human capital. That whole thing is called talent ac acquisition. The sensibilities have changed. The culture has changed. So I, 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 I recommend to those that are listening that own businesses to adapt and to look at their employees differently and what it's like to work there. And also gonna, maybe get more of their employees' input. Oh, like, oh. 
you know, I think sometimes people forget that their employees actually working with the product or working with the people have some really great insight to how to improve the situation. Well, that brings us really to your end of the pool, Cynthia, because the work, you know, that you do with diversity, equity, and inclusion, that's obviously a big thing that came about since Black Lives Matter and COVID and everything. But I personally believe that most companies get this wrong because they're too focused on making their 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 numbers. And that's what it is. When the CEO calls calls down to HR and says, Mervin, we need to get these DEI numbers up. And they go, okay, they snap to it and they get the DEI numbers. And what's lost in that conversation, actually missing from, from the conversation, is engaging those workers. It's not just a diversity of people from different races and backgrounds. It's the diversity of ideas and the diversity of perspectives that can improve your company and your bottom line. Again, looking at workers as potential assets rather than cost items. Exactly. Well, my organization, especially after Black Lives Matter and the ending of the shutdown from COVID, we started taking our, our the board of our organization and our senior management uh, decided it would be good for us to take some series of seminars. And these were everything from knowing your DISC profile, like what your working style is, how your personality, your talents shape your, your working style and how that can help you be a better team player, also be just a, a better worker on your own, understanding yourself and understanding how other people approach a project. Then we went to having more cultural awareness seminars. And then as this was going on, the board and senior management were discussing that we just don't want to say we've gone through these seminars and we're done and that we just don't want to slap up DEI all over our, our materials. We really want it to ingrain and change. So we had some seminars on diversity, equity, and inclusion and what that really meant and what that meant in the way of not only how people we would go through exercises where, you know, they would have a scenario and we, we would each give our interpretation of that scenario. And it would show how sometimes they were different and the reason, and what was the diff, what was the reason behind those differences and how a certain culture has ingrained everything and your interpretation on every level in your society. And it was really, turning things upside down in a positive way. And sometimes it was uncomfortable conversations, but I think all the staff and the board, we all really wanted to see change. We really wanted to make concrete steps forward. And so the board and the staff both have their own DEI committees that are ongoing. It was through them that we've had some different language put in to all of our branding materials. We've agreed upon and voted upon our six core values that are now involved in our conversations as staff to staff and also our organization to the community and the board. And we're really trying to integrate it and change. And personally for me, not coming, not going, approaching everything from just my perspective as a white woman. And, and I'm going to interject. You spent at least six years overseas. So you have a larger background than I do just growing up in suburban mm. Chicago. Right. But and ironically, even with my international experience, which was hugely valuable and I'm so grateful for it, I had to step back and realize sometimes, even if I'm thinking I'm being open-minded and culturally sensitive and don't think I see color, I really do see color. And it does affect how I approach people. For me, it's trying to be overly positive and inclusive. Instead of just, as one person put it in our training, just let them share what they want to share. Let them tell you how they like to be approached or addressed. Anything. Don't make the assumption that you have to initiate it. Don't make the assumption that you're going to fix it. It's not really yours to fix. It's your. It's to bring everybody to the table and really listen to each other, and look through different colored lenses and, instead of what you 
grew up with, whether you realized you took it consciously or subconsciously in your psyche. So, so it, it was, it was, it was really, it's actually, it was a little difficult at the beginning, but after a while it was just like, okay, I'm just going to sit back and let it happen and like, let it soak in. And I think the more and more over the months now, after the training, we've had more conversations about it and, and people are having more epiphanies, little epiphanies about, oh, wow, I really looked at it this way. And now I'm going to, I'm realizing that I'm not making this assumption. I think it comes down to a lot of assumptions or stereotypes that people are trying to break down and and really see people's individuals and approach them in that way. Well, let's not forget too that you are, you know, when you think about other sensibilities, you know, it's it's not unlike what Mark does with customer journey mapping. There are people that are interfacing with your with your nonprofit organization. And you are, and, and you have to create great experiences for them. Otherwise, they won't use you, and you won't make the impact that you set out to do. And probably your funding will get impacted. You're really becoming the type of the type of organization that people want to engage, either work for, or do business with. And I think that that crosses into Mark's thing very well. It's like, what are you doing as a company, as an employer, to make people want to work for you and then what are you doing and then are you becoming the type of company that people want to do business with like that's one of the biggest selling points of certified b corporations which you know that's sort of the good housekeeping seal stamp of approval in terms of social responsibility you know people feel it's almost like they're giving themselves a slap on the back for doing business with the b corporation yeah. Just like they do when they make a donation into a nonprofit. It's a congratulatory feeling that you're making a difference somehow. And that's changed. We've noticed that change because of the employees at these organizations are wanting a more integral um, participation. They just don't want to do it so they can put it in their annual report that they've put a thousand volunteer hours into the community. So we're, we're seeing it on a much more ground level of these corporations. They really want to make an impact and continue making an impact through not only their dollars, but their involvement in volunteering and being part of the uh, promotion of the programs. Such a good point. I mean, for, mm -hmm. uh, for over a decade, I, I was vice chair of the corporate board of Access Community Health, the largest provider of primary health care to the uninsured in the United States. And we had on the board of directors, we had at least three patients, people that were Medicaid patients on the board, at board level, mm -hmm. offering people a perspective on the services that they were providing. And that's what you need. We need, we've gotten that on our board. Our board has become very diverse, not only on uh, socioeconomic background and racial background, but just really every avenue because you need that input. You need to know where the needs are, and you can't always get, get that from corporate leadership. Indeed, which brings us to barriers to employment. Before we get into the next segment, we wanted to let you know you're listening to Getting Down to Business with Mark Mondo on WVLP 103.1 FM, a community radio station out of Valparaiso, Indiana. Thanks for listening, and let's continue. All right, Michael, you have kicked the 20th century approach to hiring people in the chops. What I want to hear in this second half of the show is to talk about your approach and how would you advise a company to hire people and turn them into assets rather than an antithetical approach or an adversarial approach to employment. Sure. Sure. Yeah. You know, HR has been forced to adapt to these changing realities at the speed of competition. You know, in a new competitive marketplace for talent, companies who didn't adapt found themselves at a disadvantage. Those who did thrived. So I, I think that companies are becoming more creative. You know, with, with the talent pools shrinking, more open positions than there are people to fill them, they're getting more creative about how to approach filling the positions they need to grow their workforces. We're finding that instead of, for instance, doing background checks that 
just screen out people. Oh, felony. Oh, you know, you know, long gaps in their employment, you know, any number of issues. Instead of screening out these undesirable or unqualified candidates, perhaps it might be better to screen in desirable, otherwise qualified candidates with higher risk profiles. And by doing that, it helps taking a more holistic view toward their workforces and their individual employees. They can manage risk. They can meet compliance requirements. Uh, HR can also develop employee success strategies, not unlike a caseworker in Cynthia's nonprofit world, or uh, make productive interventions when needed and appropriate. It's all changing. And oh, by the way, you know, there's a compelling business case for doing so. Um, oh, uh, hold on a sec here. You're, you're telling me that if I'm a 20th century employer and I'm going to put myself in those shoes for a second, isn't it just easier for me to hit filter and just filter for the five or six people that are left? Or what, what you know, tell me more about that approach and what, what's the business case? It's easier for me to take away and say no. I want to hear more about what the business case is to be. To yeah, forward. I mean, you know, even just right here in you know Chicago and the five collar counties, there are over sixty thousand open manufacturing jobs that pay pretty well, and only half of them require a high school diploma. Now that, of course, you know assumes that that high school diploma you have the right math and science to be able to fulfill the job, but Digging a little deeper and getting them the training that they need is actually, I mean, a business owner always does cost-benefit analysis. Everybody does. If I had the, I mean, I know that I have X number of customers, but I only have the capacity to fill, let's say, 80% of the market demand for my services. I can't grow unless my capacity is increased. I increase my capacity by bringing on more workers. Workers, employers never, ever think about bringing on employees to be nice guys. It's always the a mode of last resort. I have to bring on more employees to meet market demand. So if you fail to do that, then you fail to grow. So there is a business case for doing that even beyond those opaque things. I mean, sure. I mean, there is reducing turnover. The overtime that you have to pay your overworked staff that you have now, those are real costs. Remember, turnover can cost you a couple of times salary in recruiting and training costs. Then there's a disengagement cost of $3,400 per 10000 that you're paying people for your employees that you do have on board that just don't care about what you're trying to do. Oh, um, did that, you know what that sounds like to me when you put those numbers together? It's like paying my own tax of 30, 34%. Huh, yeah. So you're taxing yourself. You're taxing yourself. Like, like a stunad. But the other thing that a lot of people don't realize is there are massive state and federal incentives, tax credits available for companies who hire people with barriers to employment. And what do you mean by barriers to employment? Who are the, 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 these people? Who, who qualifies for them? It turns out a lot of folks. If you hire a veteran, that's a big tax credit. If you hire people that are currently or have been on food stamps. That's another one. People who live in empowerment or enterprise zones, you hire those folks, this is thousands of dollars. Vocational rehab referrals, I mean, people that are you know transitioning, there's ex-felon returning citizens. Those are other ones where there, there's a business case for the state to pay them you know, to pay you money to hire the, the, these people so they've got a lesser chance of returning to prison where they're going to cost the state and us taxpayers a lot of money. What does it cost? Something like a hundred grand a year per inmate to house them and care for them and keep them secured and whatnot. It's a lot of money. So there's supplemental security income recipients, TANF, long-term unemployed people, people that have been unemployed for a long time. Like let's say mothers who want to get back into the workforce. All these folks, it can be up to 9,600 bucks per employee. So, you know, that's a considerable, if you're paying somebody $50,000 a year, you know, that's basically 20% of your payroll cost for those people. So it's a reverse tax. For, for, being, for being a more caring and holistic employer. And just so the audience knows, are there agencies 
out there. We don't have to name names of firms, but there are companies that can help people find these credits and yeah, help you through are, People that are interested can call you and refer them over to my clients that actually do this. They do it on a contingency basis. They take, I think, 30% of, of whatever is recovered at no cost or risk to the employer. Because, you know, to do it yourself, as I understand it, paperwork is pretty onerous. So if you have somebody who specializes in doing all that, it might be a good idea. Easier to implement than you think. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you look at women. It was something in the Tribune today about 70,000 child care agencies are in danger of losing the funding that came during some of the COVID some, some of the Biden programs that came across during, during COVID, these childcare places allowed a lot of women to return to the workforce. And this totals, and it expires the end of, uh, of September, and obviously it's very political and, and whatnot, but it's $24 billion in government aid for these 70,000 childcare agencies. And what that covers is 3.2 million kids I don't know how many women that covers, but it definitely will impact women in the workforce. And if that doesn't get passed, don't be surprised if you start losing women on your payroll because they're having trouble finding affordable childcare. Wow. That's another thing that if you want to attract a good worker, especially women, you should be looking into having your own daycare service within your company. Absolutely. It's not unheard of in other countries. It's a business expense too, by, by the way. I exactly. Mean, it's probably well, less than what we spend in the U.S., which I just found out online. From usafacts.org, their report was from September of last year. They're spending per prisoner from 18000 per prisoner in Mississippi all the way up to 135978 dollars per prisoner in Wyoming. That makes the average state spending over $45,000 per inmate. There you go. Hmm. You know, and that money could be better spent with daycare uh, <laughs> take take in, in your company. So you can just drop off your little one there, go to work and pick them right back up. Well, there's also an incentive, and I don't know how that's going to change culturally. And this might be a little bit off our reservation here of our, our outline, but I'd like to address it. I saw a presentation a couple of years ago through the SBAC, Small Business Advisory Council, and there was an economist I think they brought from Chase or one of those really big banks. And they were talking about trying to bring what we call those returning citizens. Is that the, the term for or second chance or returning citizens after prison to make the business case like, hey, let's get them back if they committed, I'll call it nonviolent crime, shoplifting or something. and they're going to come back and do a office job. But if they had that scarlet letter on their record, they're not going to get through. They're going to get screened out. But if they come back in and there's a path to redemption, uh, they now become a consumer in the economy. And here you go. 70% of our economy is business to consumer spending or consumer-based spending. Yeah, 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 no doubt. I mean, it's uh, if you want to just be hard and cold about it and less holistic and just be really hard and cold, there's still a business case for doing the right thing. Because if you look after these folks that uh, give them a solid opportunity and safety nets for when, you know, they stumble, what you're doing is they become an asset to society that pay taxes and, and bring economic impact that is positive to our society rather than being a cost to, to society. And it's just, for me, it's very straightforward. You can even take the moral case out of it and it still makes sense. No, I agree. You have more stable communities that way. Absolutely. They're better. It, it, it's a cycle. Everything gets affected in a positive way. Sure. What was, you know, like, like, like George Bailey and it's a wonderful life. Don't they, don't, don't they become better, you know, consumers and better citizens and, you mm -hmm. know, it's, yeah. You know, exactly. it's, yeah, you know, you know, highly interconnected, all of us. And 
But if you're just trying to build your workforce into something, something special where people want to work for you, they give you their all, you know, they bring their ideas and their innovation and their perspectives, you become a better company, you make more money and you know, you've got an energy about it. I mean, I, I've been a part of both kinds of, of environments and you can feel it right through your pores. This is just a topic I want to address about how somebody that works for you, bringing that input and changing and potentially changing a dynamic in a fairly significant way, rather than just treating them as a commodity that can only do one thing. And the only thing you see is the cost control. Right before we started this recording, I have an office in the UK and my colleague and I chatted for a good hour and hour, hour and a half. And you know, we had a state of the union, so to speak, like, okay, well, what are we doing for marketing? And I said, here's, I'm doing X, Y, and Z strategies. Are they building it the way I want it to? No. So he came out and said, look, maybe it's finally time. Maybe it is finally to give up on the dream of making the UK office just I'll call it one product, one brand, and one offering, and diversifying it into multiple products and a more diverse cast of characters that we can present to a single relationship. So the skills that my colleague can bring to the table that I don't even know how to even start doing, or if I did, I I'm really not strong at it. Let's say. Uh, the, the client wants to start creating virtual servers and they don't want to expand in IT anymore. So my company in the UK can not only do CRM, but hey, you need a server too, we'll spin up a server. Need a data warehouse, we can do that too. And we're gonna start probably addressing this in late 23, early 24 to take the company from just one product, one service to building the relationship with multiple uh, points of entry, and then creating something that's more sustainable and scalable. Do you know where you learn whether or not that that is viable? Uh, no. Can you tell me a little bit about that? From your front level workers, man. You know, the people that are, that, that are interfacing directly with your customers, that they can be a source of intelligence for you to develop new product and service offerings and, and, and lines to improve your processes to create better customer experiences, which by the way, you know, that's another massive turnover you want to avoid because it costs seven times more to attract a new customer than to retain an old one. It's your workers and the continuity of keeping people on board and nurturing your customer relationships. All this directly impacts your bottom line. We're, we're living the example of taking the host of the show, me, taking contractor or employee feedback, taking their uh, contribution seriously. And if we can pivot the business into another resource or another income source, and uh, like you said, maintain growth rather than being adversarial to our clients like nickel and diming them or trying to cut costs rather than adding value, I think that's going to be uh, a future we're going to start addressing. It's a story in progress. I love it. We're always growing. I shared my practical story, but I know Michael's got a lot more stories. Every time we go out for a Guinness, he has stories to tell. So I remember one of the stories you were talking about as a consultant in the 90s. You were, a, you were brought in as a consultant for a mortgage company in 1990s Chicago. Obviously, the technology was different. The way employees were treated were different, but I think you brought something a little different to the table than a standard Vera cost approach. Can you talk, talk more about that? Sure, sure, absolutely. Yeah, it was uh, funny. We just kind of spend some time at a business and you ask a lot of questions and you learn how they do things, who their customers are and where they're coming from, how they're paying people. It all starts forming into a model, right? And I And one thing that really struck me is you know, the people, nobody gets paid in the mortgage business until a mortgage closes. It's at the closing that all the money flows. And until then, there's no income at all, meaning that you're paying bills during that time. And so uh, the people that actually get you paid are not the guy, the sales guy out front, you know, the loan officer guy who is out there 
writing up the mortgage. It's the person in the back office, the processor and the closer. Those are the people that are back there that are verifying your income, verifying the value of, of the home you want to buy, uh, verifying your, your credit score and your bills, the fact that you're getting clean and clear title, the people that do all of that. And I thought it was, it, it struck me that the sales guy in the front end, you know, that's out there schmoozing the, um, the realtor ladies, that guy is making a lot of money for about an hour's worth of work. And the person also probably knows that is probably the most, the least technologically advanced in terms of the mortgage industry and, and the guidelines involved with closing a loan. But they just knew less. The back office people that were processing the loans and closing them, they were making way less. They were making a fraction, probably 25% of what the, the salesperson was. They were doing all the work. And they were the ones that were essentially ensuring that everyone, including the sales guys, got, got paid. And that just seemed really up, upside down to me. And I said, wait a minute, especially since through my relationships, I could probably generate more business myself than all the loan officer guys combined. I said, wait a minute, why don't we... And by the way, they also used to focus all their effort and time, the sales guys, on like their two or three loans that they would have in the pipeline at any given time, which is just a complete waste of time when the person that's actually running those, the, those loans through the pipeline toward a closing is actually the back office work. You do all that, the processors and the closers. So I said, wait a minute. I said, well, we're going ch to change things up here we were brought in to essentially turn around a struggling mortgage company. And he said, okay, I will go and, and develop relationships and sign agreements with real estate agencies that will refer us loans, give us first crack on every loan app, a application for a home that they might sell. We will change the compensation structure and your job description. The salesperson now is no longer the cowboy guy out there on his own bringing in just a few loans here and there now this person has to now think from a service perspective that they are that they are now providing all the service that the realtors need for marketing and to create more buyers and sellers because realtors famously will spend 80% of their time trying to generate business and 20% of their time if they're real good closing deals well, if we could flip that out its ear, then the realtors are making more money. And meanwhile, a more productive use of the loan officer's time is then supporting those people and helping them find more buyers and sellers. We did this. And oh, by, by, by the way, the, their compensations uh, changed from full, uh, from full commission to now being a salary and a smaller commission to reflect you know, the service kind of thing, a service role. The processors and the back office people that actually got us paid, the people that actually know more technically about getting a loan processed and closed, that know more about, about the business than, than the salespeople, those people we now put on incentive. We put them on a salary plus. So instead of the loan officer guys making $100,000 a year, processors making $25,000 a year, now, it all evened out, and they were all making seventy-five to one hundred thousand dollars a year. Uh, we felt that if we wanted them to work together as a team, we needed to compensate them as a team. What was the net effect of all that? Uh, we doubled mortgage volume and profitability in less than ten months' time, and it, it was met with a ton of resistance. The loan officers guys hated it until they didn't processing people in the back office, well, they were pretty pleased right from the jump. And yeah, there, there, there was friction for about three months time until the checks started coming in. They go, oh, I understand. Oh, another business case of Wallian was right. <laughs> or it, it worked. <laughs> <laughs> in any event, it sounds like you are living what you've talked about throughout this hour. You took HR and you changed the model versus them being a cost center and you leveraged their strengths and everybody made more trade 
and there was more money to go around. Indeed. And it was it was being able to think outside the box a little bit and challenge the status quo a little bit and, and approach things a little bit differently. I think that small businesses are faced with this every day. I don't think uh, the trouble with a small business owner, and Mark, you see this every day, is they, the small business owner wears so many hats. There's just limited bandwidth to be in. You know, it's, it's too easy to fall out of the vision business. When you're constantly solving problems on a day-to-day basis, it's too easy to be myopic and to be able to, and too hard to step back and look at things differently. But see, that's but that's what you bring to the table, though, Mark. Is when you come into a company, you're advising more than IT. You are also asking questions that help re-engineer processes and, and make things more and more efficient, so that bottom line impact can happen. Well, that's what we try to do here. We're coming back to the technology side is the role of the small business owner and the consultancy role is not necessarily installing software anymore. In the tech side, it's just making sure, being able to ask strategic questions and helping the client focus on getting more sales or leveraging the assets that they have. So, yeah, I think the world is changing. I hope this discussion for the audience has given a different perspective on how employees or contractors or partnerships can be leveraged. Oh boy, we're finally reaching the end of the hour here. I'd like to thank Cynthia for keeping us on the level and on time today. You're always welcome. I'd like to thank Michael for coming back. He's been an essential resource to help us make the show that much better. Thank you, Michael. My, it's my, my pleasure. I, I enjoy you both. If you missed some of the show today, you can listen to the replay on Thursday at 1 p.m. Central Time on WVLP 103.1 FM or live stream at www.wvlp.org. And we store the past shows on the website at www.mondocrm.com forward slash podcast, or you can listen to the podcast on your favorite app at any time. We're listed in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, and Podbean. Just search for Mark Mondo and the show will come up and you can subscribe to the show for the latest updates. Thank you very much for spending time with us today and we'll see you next week.